This episode is brought to you with support from Ever. Ever is the first truly scalable form of clean baseload power. Ever's technology harvests heat from deep within the earth to be used for commercial heating applications or to generate electricity. The company's original U-shaped well design creates a closed-loop system that differentiates Ever from traditional geothermal. The Everlight demonstration project is a full-scale prototype located near Rocky Mountain House, Alberta. As of February 2020, the site is fully operational with third-party validated success. From that success, Ever's first commercial project was announced in the Yukon, Canada. Ever is currently developing another project in Germany with many more in the pipeline for Alberta and beyond. Ever's mission is to enable the delivery of competitive clean energy on demand at scale. Find out more at eavor.com. This crisis will be over, uh, and when it is, we will still be faced with the realities we're faced today. And the first reality, of course, is that the climate is changing uh, because of human action. This is not a hoax. This is not, um, you know, a panic language for no reason. This is an absolute, uh, absolute fact. As devastating and as dangerous as Corona is uh, in a much more real way for everyone today. There's been a lot of talk about a green stimulus plan here in the United States, but so far, little action. In Europe, meanwhile, it's a different story. We get the details on where the EU Green Deal stands amid the coronavirus pandemic from EU Ambassador to the US, Stavros Lambrinidis. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the University of Southern California's Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and contributing editor at Green Tech Media. Late last year, before the world was gripped by the coronavirus crisis, if you can remember that far back, the European Union introduced a bold plan to reach carbon neutrality by 2050 and achieve a just transition away from polluting technologies. The $1 trillion plan will draw from the EU budget, as well as from public and private investors, to finance a range of green initiatives, from improving home efficiency, to deploying renewable energy, to installing EV charging stations, and more. Europe's Green Deal has strong backing from many of the EU's top political figures, but it also has its opponents, including the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland, all coal-heavy countries, which means there could be policy battles yet to come. And yet, experts at the International Energy Agency and elsewhere say this is the time for countries around the globe to double down on clean energy investment, to improve people's health, and boost economic activity. On this episode, we're excited to bring you a discussion with EU Ambassador to the U.S., Stavros Lambrinidis, about the implications of COVID-19 for Europe's energy and climate agenda. We discuss where the EU Green Deal stands and what's to come for international climate talks, as well as Europe's push for greater digitalization amid its economic recovery. But not only that, we also discuss the fallout from plummeting oil prices, what to do with stranded assets, the U.S. economic recovery, and corporate clean energy commitments amid coronavirus with a truly stellar panel of experts. Also this episode, you'll hear from Marsden Hanna, Head of Sustainability and Climate Policy for the Government Affairs Team at Google, 
You'll hear from Nico Safos, Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Energy Security and Climate Change Program. Also Kevin Book, Managing Director of Research at Clearview Energy Partners. And Greg Gershuni, Executive Director of the Energy and Environment Program at the Aspen Institute. This conversation was originally held in mid-April at a virtual event hosted by the EU delegation to the U.S. I moderated this discussion, and I'm really excited to bring it to the political climate feed with the delegation's consent. So thank you to them for that. The audio has been lightly edited for clarity and flow, but I left the part where I dropped off the line because my laptop somehow decided to do a full reboot mid-live stream. Don't worry, it does not really disrupt the conversation, but I'd be lying if I wasn't just a little panicked behind the scenes. Ah, gotta love this new digital life. Anyway, I think this is a really interesting conversation and I hope you enjoy. Finally, while I have you, please leave Political Climate a review. It really means a lot and helps us keep bringing you more content. Thanks so much. Now over to the ambassador. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Julia, and thank you to everyone who's, uh, who's here with us uh, today on, uh, on a hugely important topic, because as we're fighting corona uh, as we speak uh, in the U.S. and Europe and around the world, uh, we still have to face some realities when we're out of this crisis, and we will be out of this crisis, and these realities uh, do not go away. I'd like to, uh, to focus on three main uh, reflections uh, from a European perspective. The, uh, the first one will have to do with uh, the, the world crisis realities we face. The second one uh, will focus on the will uh, to address them. And the third one will focus on the way. So if you like, three W's. Now, you know, the world faces two existential crises and two uh, races against time at the same time. This is daunting, but it's a fact. Uh, the coronavirus crisis and, uh, and the climate change crisis. And uh, there's no question that uh, addressing them both, as we have to, will require a tremendous amount of uh, focus, of uh, political will, and of investment. The um, corona crisis is, is a first priority, both uh, in the U.S. and in Europe. There are people dying as we speak. Uh, more will die. We have to uh, reduce the number of those uh, deaths, uh, stop it uh, as soon as we possibly can. We have to create resilience in our health systems to do so. We need to have open trade flows around the world to make sure that people in need in our countries and around the world will have access to the equipment they need. We need to support our health workers and all the other frontline workers. And this is ongoing. Uh, and in Europe, we have made a humongous political commitment uh, based on European solidarity, the classic thing that the EU is, is founded on, to work together uh, to address uh, all these different challenges and to commit uh, uh, unprecedented amounts of funding, both uh, from Europe itself uh, to our member states, our member states themselves, and also funding to support countries around the world, uh, less privileged than we are, who also are facing this crisis. Uh, but this crisis will be over. Uh, and when it is, we will still be faced with the realities we are faced uh, today. And the first reality, of course, is that the climate is changing uh, because of human action. This is not a hoax. This is not, um, you know, a panic language for no reason. This is an absolute, a, absolute fact. As devastating and as dangerous as Corona is uh, in a much more real way for everyone today. The floods uh, will continue. Uh, the uh, desertification will continue. The sea will uh, continue rising. Uh, there will be wildfires. There will be droughts. 
there will be uh, catastrophic consequences on our health, on our well-being, on our uh, economic growth, if we don't address this crisis. And the second question that relates to the first then is, we're all discussing now recharging our economies uh, when the crisis is over um, uh, and, uh, and uh, moving on to new growth. And the question there for all of us, I suppose, is what kind of recharging that will be and what growth that will be. Will it be the growth that is the growth of the past, the growth the, uh, as usual growth, the growth that pollutes the environment, uh, the growth uh, that by definition has an expiration date, or will we be investing immediately now uh, to a new kind of growth, because we will be investing, the money will be out there, to a new kind of growth uh, that uh, is uh, uh, circular that is, and that uh, allows for workers and our citizens uh, to uh, be remarkably profitable in uh, new jobs, new opportunities, while at the same time protecting the environment. The answer to that question uh, lies in the question itself. The answer is we have to go to the second type of growth. These are the, if you like, um, the facts. And if you look at the EU's Green Deal, it has been conceived as a uh, modern growth strategy that will make Europe um, ready for fundamental changes uh, ahead, that will address the existential risks of climate change and biodiversity loss, uh, and it will simultaneously provide for health, uh, well-being of citizens, and create sustainable jobs and people for the modern circular economy. These are the facts. This is what we will be facing. This is what we have planned even before the coronavirus crisis. This is what we will be applying. Second point, the will, the political will. This does require political will. There are many people out there, uh, politicians and companies, who were not particularly happy with the reality, the unfortunate, dangerous reality of climate change, who denied it, who uh, didn't feel that uh, it was worth uh, the economic uh, investment uh, to address, uh, who have, uh, frankly, in some instances, entrenched economic interests on the other side uh, of, this, uh, of this economic growth divide. But the European uh, Union and the European Commission and the governments, the European Council, have, uh, as recently as today, made it very clear that the EU will grow after this crisis through focusing on digital transformation and on climate change transformation. If you look at the joint statement that was put out by Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, the governments, and by Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, you will see after the G7 meeting that just happened this morning, US time, you will see that they make that point very clear. They say that the green growth will be the key to Europe's coming out of the coronavirus crisis and moving forward. Uh, if you look at the uh, executive vice president of the commission, uh, Franz Timmermans, uh, the person uh, leading the uh, green growth agenda, uh, you will see as well uh, in an editorial that was published uh, today, but also in a number of statements in the recent past, uh, that uh, this is and will remain the EU emphasis. And in fact, uh, we have introduced uh, into uh, a legal proposal, not just an aspirational proposal, the Green Deal, uh, so that crises such as Corona and other such crises that will certainly break up in the future and require a renewed attention uh, at some point will not be uh, breaks to the uh, Green Deal uh, transformation. So we will have a law in place in Europe to ensure that our commitment for a 
2050 carbon neutrality, but also for much more ambitious targets uh, for 2030 will be there. Now, third and final point, the way. This uh, transformation will need uh, a tremendous amount of investment. In fact, the fundamental problem we have today is not that we don't have the green technologies in place or the technologies for, uh, for um, uh, anything affecting water, energy, construction, mobility, uh, cars, etc., uh, agriculture, industrial processes, building efficiency, all these are there. Uh, what we don't have uh, in some instances is the sustained investment in them that will allow them uh, to uh, reach the full economies of scale. Uh, they are, however, already in the past few years dramatically decreasing in cost because, in fact, there's such a great emphasis led by Europe, but not only by Europe, to ensure that, uh, that, they, uh, that they become uh, streamlined. So we have committed already one trillion um, uh, euros, which is more than a trillion dollars uh, for the next uh, uh, 10 years in a green investment uh, sort of fund. Uh, but this is just part of the whole equation of our investment, uh, European investment in this, uh, in this uh, business or European legislation, indeed, uh, or regulation uh, and incentives uh, that we will be putting in place to, uh, to encourage our companies to jump on this, on this uh, humongously important wave. The European budget, we are negotiating as we speak now the budget for the next seven years in Europe. That's the money that every EU member state, all the 27, are putting in as joint European money to be able to support each other in the main priorities of the EU. That is going to be, in addition to the trillion that I mentioned before, a major, major uh, financial uh, incentive. And by the end of April, right now, it's uh, slated uh, to, uh, uh, to be uh, presented. And it will be the main um, emphasis for our recovery plan coming out of, of, of COVID. Now, the climate law I mentioned, uh, I mentioned to you, there are initiatives in the pipeline that I think is important for people to know. The uh, renovation wave that is focused on scaling up uh, the energy efficiency in the building sector, offshore wind uh, strategy. Uh, these are there, they are working, and they are um, well-placed to become a cornerstone of the green recovery. And we have a number of, uh, of other successful existing programs and measures uh, that could uh, build up uh, or expedite to bring forward a clean energy investment. Uh, and indeed, uh, investment and barriers to investment is something that, as I mentioned before, we will be focusing on. Finally, uh, Julia and dear friends, uh, let me say that our message is not just a European one, it is a world one. Uh, the Paris Agreement uh, was a humongous success of the world. Uh, I am very sad, and I have been for a while, that the United States uh, decided to announce that it would leave it. I hope that it will return. And I do, uh, because it is uh, impossible for Europe alone uh, to be able to uh, fight this without uh, the um, co-leadership uh, of uh, the United States and of other countries, uh, uh, China, Canada, Australia, others who are the major world polluters. The EU and our member states at this stage uh, pollute uh, about uh, 8% of, of all the carbon emissions coming out come from us. That's a very, very small amount of carbon emissions compared to the major polluters and, uh, and therefore, what I would hope is that the United States will be able to show the renewed leadership. I don't want it to follow Europe. I would love it to be, if, if it wishes. Because this is not, as I said, simply about saving the environment. It's about a new growth strategy that all our economies will need coming out of this. Investing in the past 
will almost guarantee economic failure. It's money thrown down the wrong uh, pipe, uh, and it will um, um, end up in bankruptcies and in uh, lost profits. Investing in the future means a lot of money. You want an example of this? Just to just make it clear, the European Investment Bank an announced uh, the you know one trillion investments in the next uh, ten years in uh, in green growth. It also announced it would stop funding technologies that uh, that pollute the environment. Now there are two things happening there. Either these guys are just a bunch of economic losers who are determined uh, to bring the European Investment Bank down to its knees because they don't know how to invest their money. And the European Investment Bank, mind you, is much bigger than the World Bank. It's the biggest uh, you know, uh, investment bank in the world. Or they know what they're talking about. And the EIB, believe you me, is a bank that really cares about its AAA rating. It's not throwing money right and left. Uh, we had major discussions with the EIB during the financial crisis about the projects that could be invested in Europe as well to ensure the financial crisis could, could be mitigated as soon as possible. And the EIB was very strict about those projects. It was not, even though the political imperative was there, it was very, very strict about the, uh, the economic viability. When the EIB announces a trillion and believes that this is money that will create tremendous growth and profit, that is a sign, I think, to everyone, including in the U.S., to those listening who care about this, that this is not pie in the sky. This is serious business. Yes, uh, COP26 uh, had to be postponed uh, by the UK, but uh, we announced that we are not stopping on our commitments um, and we, are, we will keep working on them. Uh, so this is a critical moment. It's a changing moment. Europe uh, is looking at the world crisis realities, has the political will and has the way uh, to achieve the, uh, the green transition. It will continue focusing on this. It will not be easy or as easy as it was perhaps a few months ago, because indeed the coronavirus crisis has demanded a tremendous amount of our emphasis and our, and our focus, but it will happen. And uh, as it does, and as we change Europe, uh, we will be changing the world. And as we change the world, we will be saving it. And we will be creating jobs and growth and a future for our people that will be unprecedented. And we will be facing the skeptics and we will be facing the deniers, and we will not be stopped because we know what is good for Europe and we know what is good for the world. So please rest assured that this will happen, and please support us, the European Union, in this effort. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you very much, Ambassador. So building on the ambassador's remarks, uh, Nikos at CSIS, I wanted to turn to you. What are some of the key elements of the EU Green Deal that you think are particularly important and you know, could help in the economic recovery? Um, and how do you think they're going to be prioritized in this moment? You know, There is a lot to be weighed and for, for leaders to consider right now. So what is the view you have on how the EU will go about doing this? Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, and thank you everyone for joining. Obviously, the number one priority is to stabilize the economy before you can start rebuilding. Everyone understands that. The way I think of the Green Deal, though, is it's Europe's true north. It gives you a sense of where the continent wants to go. And so it has a relevance for the type of recovery that Europe envisions for itself. Now, this is a very revolutionary plan, thinking about a net zero economy by 2050. I like to think of the Green Deal as sort of having two parts. One, for anyone who's an energy geek, 
there's a lot of familiar stuff in there, uh, pricing carbon, rules for pollution, incentivizing efficiency, supporting fuels, uh, switching between modes of transportation. These are very familiar things that anyone who's trying to decarbonize an economy, that's what they're looking at. But there's a second part to the Green Deal that I think is even more revolutionary. It will be particularly important in the context of the post-coronavirus environment. And I want to focus in particular on four elements and touch on them briefly. Number one is the emphasis on making this a just transition. We are acutely aware in this crisis that it is hitting the most vulnerable among us. And when you think about the global fight for climate change, unless you have a way to bring in the people that are currently working in the fossil fuel value chain, if you can't show them that they too have a future in this new world, it's gonna be very difficult to make progress. So I think this is important both for the recovery because a lot of these communities and regions are hit today, and they will need to recover, but also the lessons that Europe learns, we have to bring those lessons. We have to bring those lessons to China, to India, to Indonesia. One day we'll have to bring them to Alaska and Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana. How do you take economies that have traditionally produced fossil fuels and do something else? That's number one. Number two is industry. And we have to think about the type of industry that we want. The ambassador talked about that. And we have to be strategic about the type of industrial growth that we need. And I think one of the key elements of the Green Deal is that it is very explicitly framed as an industrial strategy. So I take comfort that when we think about where do we wanna channel money, what kind of sectors we wanna build up, we will be thinking and the European Union will be thinking about the environment in channeling that money. Number three, and the ambassador alluded to this, is the EAB becoming a climate bank. And I think this is something that obviously there's a lot of institutions out there that are trying to channel money to support uh, the energy transition. But we've never seen an established institu institution of the scale say so explicitly that they want to be a climate bank. And so imagine if, as the ambassador says, um, the EAB succeeds and you show that you can scale and you can find good projects and make a good return. Imagine in a few years, other large institutions that sit on a lot of money saying, we want 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% of our portfolio to support the energy transition. So I think there's a demonstration effect besides the pure channeling of money that's gonna reverberate around the world. And the fourth thing is trade. We are, I think in this crisis, we're gonna see trade fall dramatically. The IMF thinks about 11%. This year, the World Trade Organization has even bigger numbers. But I think we're also becoming very aware of the vulnerabilities in the supply chains. A lot of people waking up in the West realizing that the country they live in don't produce a lot of things that we would like them to produce. So there's going to be a reevaluation of supply chains and the world trading infrastructure. And one of the things I have always found most promising about the Green Deal, it puts trade squarely in the center of that conversation. It puts it through the carbon border adjustment tax and other mechanisms. My view is. It's not really about tweaking climate policy to fit the WTO. It's about renewing the WTO so that it is consistent with a world that wants to move aggressively on climate. So as we're gonna have a reevaluation of the world trading infrastructure and architecture, I think that the Green Deal is gonna make sure that we keep climate at a central focus of that discussion. Great, 
Thank you for that. Um, I want to turn now to Kevin Book at Clearview Energy Partners and broaden this a little bit to look at the more global landscape. I wanted to ask you, what's the main takeaway from the OPEC Plus meeting that took place recently, where they were discussing, uh, you know, ending the oil price war? And I'm wondering if there's a connection to that and then the outlook for clean energy and climate action going forward. Could you weigh in on that, please? I think there's two ways to think about what happened on OPEC Plus that bear on the transition and the climate debate. Probably the, the first one is really straight economics. I mean, the, we know the OPEC Plus deal will not balance the market. Uh, you can't have 25 to 30 million barrels per day of demand destruction offset by 10 to 15 million barrels per day of supply management and have a balance. So that means that energy prices are going to be low for a while. And a lot of what will balance the market will be market forces, investment cancellations, production shut-ins, uh, essentially the business side uh, failing to be able to stay in business in the oil industry until things start to balance. And eventually that could mean that oil prices rise precipitously. And from a transition perspective, a high oil price has a more fundamental economic basis. Essentially having too much fossil fuel makes transition harder because fossil fuels are cheap and they take away some of the economic incentive for, for comparative advantage, particularly when you're pricing in externalities uh, or even worse when you're not. When it comes to economic weakness, there's a second side to it too. Overall economic weakness means you probably see incumbent capital stock get an advantage. So absent intervention from governments, absent other roles being played, folks are gonna hold on to what they have before. You think about it from a, a light duty transportation basis, the EV revolution that we've been waiting for all these years. You know, People aren't going to showrooms to buy cars. Capital stock isn't turning over. If they don't have the money to buy the car, then the incumbent capital stock stays. But more than that, more than that, the proposition that EVs bring to market on an economic basis is you pay a higher fixed cost for a lower variable cost and you break even by driving more. So at a time when COVID has us driving less, some of the economics are disrupted there too. I will say that when it comes to EVs, if you look in the US, they're not positively correlated with gasoline prices. People don't buy them for economic reasons. Over the last decade, they've been negatively correlated so it's not really being done on an economic basis yet. But in any case, let me get to the other side of it. Energy's economics, but other things too. And I think a lot of what we're talking about today is really those, those other things. What happened at OPEC Plus? You had a US president at the center of market management. This is a bit unusual, but actually it's not the first time we've seen this. Nikos mentioned trade, right? The China phase one deal was a US president at the center of market management. So essentially what we're talking about is, is a combination of managed markets and managed trade getting, getting more traction in the world. And that's part of what OPEC Plus is essentially saying. This is, this is a world where governments are taking a bigger role in markets. And that's not news. We've been moving in this direction for a while. And if anything, COVID has accelerated it. So what do we have? Well, we have history here in the United States when you look at what this means. Mandates have moved transition a lot faster than markets on their own. 10% of gasoline in the United States is renewable in content, ethanol, because of mandates. More than 10% of electricity on the US grid is non-hydro-renewables. Why? Because of state mandates. So this is another moment in the ascendancy of mandates. And you may ask, well, why does that matter? And I think it comes back to the recovery topics that the ambassador and Nikos both mentioned. Look, this is a time when governments are getting more powerful. Necessity requires it, right? Intervention in the public interest. 
It's also a time when I think, as, as Nico has described it, global value chains are breaking down. Uh, a lot of what was supplied globally, folks are going to want to invest in locally in what we're calling a global divorce. It's not just a breakup when everyone is doing it. It's, it's not decoupling. It's everywhere. We're looking at the entire world reconfiguring. So in, in that world, not only border adjustments gain power as a way to essentially protect. Uh, we saw in the last recession, right? Countries spent tomorrow's money on yesterday's factories. Very jealous about competition. I think you're going to see more motives, economic or climate-based, for the border adjustment regime that already was on its way with the Green Deal. But in addition to that, you now have this foundation for green recovery. It depends a lot, yes, on the political polarity of who's leading the countries that are recovering. But when we look ahead at, at a differently-minded future president, we ask, what would an empowered U.S. president do at a time of economic weakness, when economic bases for transition aren't there? We need to look no further than more than a decade ago at the Great Recession. The template was $90 billion then for clean energy. I think we could be looking at 10 times that or maybe more before all is said and done uh, in, in the right economic and political context. So I'll leave it there. Right now, this is not economically a transition accelerant, but it sets the stage both economically and non-economically for transition in the future. A lot of factors there. So rallying oil prices could be good for clean energy. Sounds like big opportunity on the political side, but we'll take some will. I want to turn now to Greg Gershuni um, at the Aspen Institute. So building on the discussion here in the U.S., I'm wondering how what your read is on the U.S. government and how they're thinking about climate and clean energy policy in the context of coronavirus. Do you think Congress is likely to do a, a big bill that would include stimulus for clean energy? Is there, is there the political appetite for that right now on your read? Yeah, thanks, Julia. Um, so I think it really depends, uh, at least in part, on what, what part of the federal government we're talking about. Um, the EPA and the Department of Interior are continuing to get rid of regulations. Even during the crisis today, uh, EPA rolled back mercury rules or undermined mercury rules um, for power plants. And two weeks ago, they rolled back CAFE standards. But I think that we may see Congress over the coming months uh, in a future phase of the COVID recovery have a stimulus bill that's focused on infrastructure. It's not going to be phase four, uh, which is probably probably going to be an extension of the small business loan program. But we could see it, uh, it coming up, especially with the jobs numbers that keep coming out week after week, and, and including the 100,000 clean energy jobs that we lost last month. Focusing on resilient infrastructure is one important way um, that we can make an infrastructure bill uh, focused on clean energy um, and climate change. I think um, investing in not only transportation, but things like highways and bridges um, and transit is going to be really important. Focusing on drinking water, uh, which is you know the key to life, is also important because there's a lot of infrastructure and jobs in repairing the oldest water infrastructure from around the country. And we need to focus on rural America, uh, which is often ignored by both political parties. And so I think that can be a place that Congress can come together um, to focus on manufacturing, which is a lot in rural areas, but also investing in schools and updating the physical infrastructure, um, including building clean energy uh, for schools and investing in farmers. And then the last thing that we're learning is we need more and better high-speed broadband so we can have more uh, conversations like this. So it's a lot, but if we're going to talk seriously about a $1 to $2 trillion infrastructure bill, I think it's important that we, you know, we get it right and include 
clean energy and, and, and uh, climate in it. I think we may have lost uh, Julia on the feed, unfortunately. <laughs> but I can uh, I can jump in here real quick. I know Julia uh, was hoping to, to chat a little bit about uh, corporate responses to uh, to clean energy. So so why don't I uh, in, until we're able to get her back, uh, hop in. Um, so uh, my name is Mars uh, with Google. Uh, I lead uh, sustainability and climate policy with the government affairs team. Uh, and, and we know that the world is is facing an unprecedented challenge. Here. Uh, and we share uh, in the grief over the loss of life and the impact on communities uh, around the world, including families and, and friends, uh, our users uh, and our employees. And oh, she's back. We have Julia. Hello there. Um, Marsden, you're doing a great job. Uh, <laughs> virtual events, I'm still getting used to, just lost the line there. But I'll, I'll hand it back to you to continue on, on yeah, how corporates are leading uh, on clean energy amid all this. Perfect. Thanks. Um, so, so uh, Google is is stepping up to do its part. Uh, we've made an eight hundred million dollar commitment to support small businesses, healthcare organizations, nonprofits, uh, and healthcare workers who are on the front lines of the pandemic. We recently launched mobility reports in one hundred and thirty countries that are uh, analyzing um, aggregated and anonymized information uh, to provide local insights about community movements, so that we can see the impact of social distancing. Uh, and we've recently partnered with Apple to enable the use of Bluetooth technology for contact tracing uh, to help health agencies around the world reduce the spread uh, of the virus. In the near term, we know that this economic and health crisis is not going to spare anyone, uh, including the clean energy sector. We're beginning to see impacts to projects as renewable energy developers face challenges uh, in their supply chain and labor availability. Um, concerns around the global economic slowdown uh, and the availability of financing are creating substantial uncertainty for future projects. Uh, this is a very challenging time, and we're going to be keenly watching to see how clean energy might be treated in economic support packages to reinforce the need, as, as we've heard earlier today uh, by the ambassador and others, uh, to place decarbonization and clean energy growth at the forefront uh, of economic recovery packages. Uh, for Google, we continue to be committed to sourcing renewable energy. Looking a little bit further down the horizon, um, our commitment to, to clean energy purchasing remains unchanged. We've signed 52 agreements totaling 5.5 gigawatts of wind and solar, uh, including 1.7 gigawatts in European markets. Uh, and with these purchases, since, since 2017, we've matched 100% of our energy consumption with renewable energy. And we're committed to, to making this grow. Uh, sorry, we're committed to maintaining this as we grow. Um, but right now, we've turned our, our focus as a company to supporting governments, healthcare workers, small businesses to, to make sure we're, we're dealing with the immediate crisis. But over the long term, uh, our commitments haven't changed and uh, clean energy is going to be a critical part of the economic recovery. But we also know that we are just uh, one company amongst many. And if we're truly going to decarbonize global economies, everyone uh, should have access to clean energy. There are about 200 companies today that are part of the RE100 movement. Uh, and if just these 200 companies achieve their goals, uh, it would, uh, to source 100% renewable energy, it would create about 97 gigawatts uh, of new renewables around the world. That's about uh, for comparison, about as much wind energy as is installed in the entire United States today. So that's with 200 companies. So imagine what we could do with 500 or 5,000 or 50,000 companies. So that's the reason we've helped establish groups like the Resource Platform in Europe uh, and the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance in the United States to help 
create pathways for every company in every geography to have access uh, to a cost-effective pathway for clean energy. So uh, as governments consider how to build sustainability and climate outcomes uh, into their recovery plans, I think it will be all the more important that we're making sure we create pathways for, for companies to be a, a core part of the solution to, to driving clean energy growth. Excellent. All right, thanks everyone for tackling that first round of questions. I wanted to turn back to the ambassador now to get his read on the future of international climate negotiations. You mentioned you are happy to have the United States lead in this regard. I'm wondering how you think the European Union can engage with the US on that, but also other countries like China, India that are both confronting the virus, but also trying to transition their energy systems and may also be thinking about stimulus for clean energy, but also perhaps fossil fuels as part of their recovery. So how can the EU engage with others in this regard? Um, thanks, Julia, the, uh, and thanks to everyone. The, the fascinating remarks. Um, we, uh, we intend to keep the political leadership that we have as European Union in the international level. This has to be an international solution to an international crisis in the exact same way that international solutions are required for the international world COVID crisis. But of course, what we each do on our own will make a huge difference in the commitment that we show uh, in our borders uh, will, um, will, will highlight that we put our money and where, our, where our mouth is, as it were, and also be able to inspire. So the first thing that we will do is ensure that we in Europe, as Europeans, uh, promote a green deal in Europe, um, uh, European uh, sovereignty uh, in this, uh, in this uh, area. The second thing we will do is that we will continue working very closely in the international community under the Paris Agreement. Uh, the, the COP and, uh, and everything else uh, to ensure that uh, we push our partners uh, to the direction that we all committed to. When it comes to the U.S., we not only talk to the administration, we will talk every day to states, uh, state governments, uh, uh, big cities, municipalities. There is a remarkable political commitment uh, at 50% of the U.S. states, amounting for over 60 or close to 70% of U.S. GDP, uh, have stated openly through the governors that they are um, uh, committing to Paris, uh, that they are working with their companies to find the most effective incentives and ways to have an energy transition here in the United States in different states. Uh, I just hope that the political commitment at the highest federal level will be returned uh, and, uh, and the U.S. will be able to not only uh, help uh, with us lead this transition, uh, but also, um, uh, frankly, benefit for the tremendous economic growth uh, potential that this uh, transition will have for the U.S. economy as well. And finally, we are the biggest, the European Union, the biggest uh, right now funders of the International Fund. So we are supporting other countries to be able to have the money uh, to do the necessary adjustment and investments as well. Uh, this is not uh, the money that will uh, solve everyone's problems. There's going to be necessity for financial commitment from all these different countries. You mentioned China, India, and others. Uh, but these international funds uh, will be a huge support to kickstart the process, and, and, and we are there. Julia, if I may say just uh, two or three things uh, inspired by what uh, others said very quickly. Indeed, uh, just transition is a huge thing. And this may be a difference between the way that Europe functions more broadly with social safety nets compared to the U.S., so, you know, the, the, the two biggest uh, open free uh, market economies in the world, and we have to remain that. Uh, but at the same time in Europe, we do take into account the people that fall through the cracks. 
uh, we do take that much more into account uh, than, uh, than perhaps uh, is, has been the case historically in the U.S., expecting the market to, uh, to take care of uh, the rebalancing of any transition. So in our case, we have announced, in addition to the Green Deal, this huge uh, just transition fund, precisely as Nikos mentioned uh, before, to ensure that uh, workers uh, in mines, uh, in, uh, in carbon-intensive industries, who will, um, in this process, uh, have their jobs, uh, the job security challenged, uh, will not be left behind and will be uh, behind this transition and supporting it. A second thing that I want to say is that one has to think of implications of um, energy transition that we normally don't discuss in these panels, uh, including geostrategic uh, interests and geostrategic stability. A classic example of that, uh, that uh, people don't usually know about, uh, but you may understand its significance when I tell you. So if you take Ukraine, it's a country that has been uh, you know, invaded by, uh, by uh, Russia. Uh, it's a country that uh, is going through an energy uh, transition itself, a very uh, uh, fossil fuel-driven um, uh, economy in the past. Uh, the European Union has committed the more substantive amount of money than anyone else in the world uh, to help Ukraine go through the transitions that it needs, political and energy and others. People say, well, you're talking about all these billions you're giving, but, you know, this is, again, money. Just give me an example of what this means. Okay. About 150 million of the money that we have given to Ukraine goes right now into uh, changing the energy efficiency of buildings in Ukraine. So you may say, oh, my God, this sounds like more European kumbaya, right? So the world is burning and you're talking about energy efficiency. But here's a fact. If Ukraine becomes as energy efficient, as the least energy efficient country in the European Union today, it will not need to import a single drop of gas or oil from anyone else in the world, including Russia. So you tell me if changing the energy efficiency of buildings in Ukraine is a Kumbaya uh, project, or if it is not a hardcore security project for Ukraine and for a region. One has to think of the tremendous benefits of energy transition that don't usually come in these discussions, and this is an example. And finally, one has to also think, as we're now dealing with corona, and this is not so much related to, uh, to energy, but to corona, but it is the whole future, because energy, frankly, and the European commitment to a digital transformation in the next years goes hand in hand with the energy transformation. It is the artificial intelligence applications that would allow farmers in Europe to reduce their reliance on pesticides and to produce healthier goods and cheaper goods uh, eventually, for example. So AI is out there. And as we're dealing with corona, we are developing a, a, a much more sophisticated ways of ensuring that we can protect our health and our population through monitoring our population much more effectively, making sure that we understand if someone has a fever, how fast they have it, who they've met before, how they isolate, all these are fantastically important technologies when you fight a virus, but they can be very dangerous ones when you're trying to keep democracy working against countries around the world who are trying to push a different model of governance, claiming that authoritarianism, controlling populations, is in fact more effective, uh, including to fight viruses, than what democracies are doing. Not only is this a false narrative, but in fact, the danger of technology violating privacy 
in ways that in a democracy we would never allow is there. So I always rely on government company cooperation, such as with Google. Uh, we, we, Google was a participant uh, back in Europe. Sort of the, the experts panel we put up, about 50 people to come up with a report on how you apply AI uh, respecting human rights in a human-centered way for their advice, for their leadership, and for their um, uh, ability to ensure that technologies that are good to fight the virus are not also being used uh, to monitor populations and to take away rights. These are all interrelated challenges, aren't they? Uh, they're not going away. Privacy is not going away. Digital challenges are not. And the climate change is not going away. And it is those of us who are determined to lead in addressing those issues that in the end of the day, I think we'll see our economies grow dramatically and we'll see our democracies and our societies um, fortify themselves against others who don't share either our climate ambitions uh, or our democracy ambitions. I'm going to actually jump in with a question now from our audience, and I'll put it to Nikos. Um, it's, uh, the comment is, $1 trillion in future green investment is great, though how will the EU EIB address the issue of fossil fuel stranded assets um, as they try to address the clean energy transition and a just transition? What is your view on addressing fossil fuel stranded assets amid all of that? That's a very good question. I wish I had an answer to it. I think that the challenge, the way I think about it, is uh, a couple of things. One is, you know, you kind of think about that 2050 world, and then you sort of back calculate what that looks like today, and you really realize at some point a lot of the things that we operate today have to get shut down, um, and that shutdown is going to have some serious impacts on the balance sheet of companies, of, of regional governments, of local governments, uh, pensions, and so on and so forth. You know, I, I don't know that we have a very good answer to that question. I sometimes sympathize with a slightly uh, free market view that says, you know, capital gets destroyed all the time uh, in all sorts of sectors, and you, uh, your role as a as a sovereign, as a government, is to make sure that uh, you sort of contain some of the fallout and that you help capital get reallocated. I think that's part of the answer. Uh, but I do think that the other part of the answer is going to come back to the question of the, of the just transition, uh, right? And you kind of are seeing this, uh, how it's playing out in Germany right now, that if you want to purposely shut down assets that still have uh, economic value in them, you'll have to find a way to compensate those people that hold on to those assets. And I don't, think that the answer that says, we're just going to destroy a bunch of value and I'm sorry, you know, that might be economically efficient, but it's not politically efficient. So part of what you're seeing, especially if you look at the United States in, in coal, uh, effectively, the U.S. coal industry went through, a, a essentially was a stranded asset value destruction where coal generation has dropped by half in, in a little bit over 10 years. And for the most part, the United States government said, you know, sorry, so tough luck. You got you got beat by gas, and in some ways that was an economically efficient uh, outcome. But you're seeing the politics of that, and the communities that are being left behind, the people that are being left behind. So, in a way, I don't think that rushing to that idea that hey, people are just going to have to lose their shirt and have to deal with this, it, it might make sense from a textbook economics perspective, but it's very difficult to sustain, I think, politically. And what you're seeing is 
when you do inflict that much damage, uh, that damage is going to come and resurface in a political way later on. And so that, to me, goes back to the question of the just transition and finding a way not to overcompensate people that made bad bets, but finding that balance between shutting down capital that has a lot of value between that and sort of keeping things afloat that we shouldn't keep afloat. That's what I hope the just transition conversation in Europe, and that's essentially where the just transition conversation in Germany has gone to. And, you know, in a traditional German way, no one is very happy with the results, but that's how democracy works. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to see more of. Great, thank you. Uh, taking another audience question here, and I'll direct this to Kevin, um, and you can maybe branch it out to include the EU and the US. Uh, the question is, how does the Green Deal and the EU's climate goals address the increasingly low cost of fossil fuels for consumers? And I'm reading that as just how economically compelling those fossil fuels are. How do you, I guess, institute a transition? You know, welcome your thoughts on that. Sure. The, uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the market right now. Uh, so when you have no demand for something, the price falls very precipitously and it creates the illusion that something can be cheap. Uh, the illusions uh, go away pretty fast though because you have, a, you have a pretty quick turnaround once prices escalate back up. Oil, as a, as a result of just natural forces, declines uh, every, every year. You have a significant global decline and the underinvestment wave that is coming is probably going to be more significant than most people realize. Think about what it would mean to be a public company CEO or CFO right now and say, okay, what I really wanna do is invest in more oil upstream investment. Let's do this right now. Uh, no one's gonna reward that, right? The price is low. We've just seen what happens when overcapacity has been punished by the market. So in many ways, I think that what we're probably heading into on the far side of all this is a place where that, that fundamental condition you're asking, cheap fossil fuels could start to go away for a little while. And when it does, a lot of things could happen at once. The first is the, the fundamental catalyst for transition, right? Already, I think you're going to see that because of carbon pricing uh, in, in the places where it's already present, that green sources are going to start to look competitive in a, even a moderate price environment. And when the price gets higher, some of those green sources are going to seem more competitive. The second thing I think we've already mentioned has to do with the border justice. Uh, as you get down to the point where prices of fossil fuels are high and organically you're starting to see people looking at diversifying because they want to manage their cost structure, you're also probably going to be entering into that fragmented world of the future. It's not a hopeful world necessarily. I think we all want to get along, but I think we have to recognize that a lot of national interest is going to come up in the context of trade. Things were not going so well before coronavirus. And a lot of folks are going to say, well, look, you're dumping on my market. You know, in this particular place, you can't use fossil energy in your electricity mix and sell into our market, like Europe, where they're in increasingly trying to move fossil fuels out of the electricity mix. Uh, and so some of those forces are, are likely to, to be accelerated, particularly countries that don't have fossil fuel endowments of their own are going to be looking at trying to establish national security, again, in this global divorce context where they're trying to not depend so much on global value chains, they're probably going to be greening their mix a bit faster too, which means some of the Asian consumers of fossil fuels now have new incentives to green up. And this becomes self-reinforcing. So in many ways, uh, that low price premise going away sets in motion a lot of other things that could start to accelerate transition on the far side of this. 
can I ask a quick follow-up? What's the timeline for the far side of this? How far in the future are we talking? Is this an immediate response to coronavirus and the economic recovery? Or are you talking some years down the line as we get back on track? Well, the oil market probably won't balance this year or maybe not even next, depending on what we see. And that question really depends almost entirely on how long we stay in our homes. Uh, transportation fuels demand down 70 or 80% in some countries right now is an absolute you know, wreck for the market. We're not, we're not going to see anything rebalancing anytime soon. The inventories have nowhere to go. They're gonna sit there until they're drawn down and the price will stay low until then. Uh, but on the far side of that, after a wave of underinvestment, we could be in 2023 or 2024. Think about this contextually. You have the first stock take uh, coming up and, and essentially the 2024, 2025 horizon where the Paris Agreement come up and happens, right? We have the, the Green Deal, with the border adjustment, I, I'll let the ambassador and others on the call tell me exactly when that will be put into law and, and effectuated, but let's assume a similar time frame. So we're talking about coincidental effects of, of a market tightening, rather precipitously maybe, at the same time that, that real green measures are being brought to bear. 2023, 2024, that's not that far right now. You know, Geologically, it's, it's a microsecond, but even, even in our somewhat distended political process, that's pretty quick. Great, thank you. Uh, Marsden, going back to you, uh, we heard that the European Union is putting a focus on the digital transformation of the grid as part of its Green Deal, as part of its broader energy transition plans. How is Google supporting the digitalization of the grid and the digital transformation beyond just what it's doing internally as a clean energy procurer, but in terms of helping governments and companies in their own transitions? Yeah, absolutely. So, so at Google, we're building sustainability into everything we do. And we know that digital technologies are going to be one of the most important tools uh, we have in driving decarbonization and addressing climate change. So we've started by employing some of these technologies first at home uh, for our own operations. So for example, at our data centers, we've achieved energy savings of 30% uh, on the electricity that's used for cooling by putting artificial intelligence in control of our systems uh, and enabling it to, to drive down and optimize the efficiency of the building. Um, so this and other measures have helped make uh, our data center some of the most efficient uh, in the world, about twice as efficient as the industry average. Uh, and we found that if all other data centers across Europe could achieve a similar level of efficiency, this could cut electrical consumption for the European data center sector by about 50%, uh, which is an amount larger than all of the electricity homes in Sweden. Um, so we do think that this kind of technology has a very important uh, application uh, at in, in industrial settings. Another example, uh, we're using artificial intelligence to make our uh, wind power contracts more predictable. Um, and when you make the wind production more predictable, you can make it more valuable uh, within an electricity system. So we're able to boost the value chain uh, uh, by, by using AI to, to help increase prediction. And then we're also beyond our own operations, building products that help promote uh, a more sustainable world. So 70% of global emissions are generated by cities. Uh, that's why we've developed a tool called the Environmental Insights Explorer um, that creates detailed models of cities um, that can help local uh, state and local governments around the world provide actionable insights about building emissions, transportation emissions, and solar rooftop potential uh, in their cities. And, and with those tools and scenario modeling capabilities, they're able to develop uh, climate action and mitigation plans that can help uh, define a plan to reduce emissions. And this is now available in over 100 cities. 
another tool that's that's available for for end users is called Project Sunroof, um, where we use machine learning to help people decide uh, if they uh, if, if putting solar on their rooftop is is right for them. And that's now uh, we've now mapped over 107 million rooftops around the world in in over 21,000 cities. And when we think about uh, not just uh, mitigation but also adaptation, we want to make sure that we are um, helping those who will be most affected by by climate change uh, adapt to a to a changing planet. So we have uh, partnered with uh, governments in India uh, to use artificial intelligence to help improve flood forecasting. Um, and when we we've, we're able to partner with uh, with the governments to to create emergency alerts so that uh, using hyperlocal uh, uh, flood forecasting, we're able to help people adapt to changing weather patterns. So we know that these kinds of technologies are, are gonna be a critical uh, component of, of helping cities, businesses, uh, and citizens decarbonize and, and create a sustainable, sustainable economic growth plan for the future. All right, going to Greg in our few remaining minutes here, we'll just have one or two more questions, but I want to get this element in. Greg, what are you hearing from the subnational level? Marsden mentioned cities there, but what also about states uh, and the action that they're taking in response to coronavirus and keeping clean energy on their agendas? What's your read on that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think obviously right now all 50 states are in an emergency status and are completely focused on, on the coronavirus and the response to that. Um, and there's cases in all states and some some worse than others. But I think as we start to come out of this, there's states that are on the front edge of taking climate action, states like California and New York and others that are going to continue down this path, uh, while there's others that have made commitments that depending on what financial situation they see themselves in uh, coming out of this crisis will either take quicker action or slower action. I think that's still kind of uh, to be determined in terms of where their budgets uh, balance. But I think that, you know, some of the incentives are already out there for states and the markets are taking care of a lot of this. So you're still going to see wind being built in places like Texas and Oklahoma and Iowa. You're still going to be, uh, you're still going to see um, transitioning from fuel oil in places like New York and New England um, to cleaner sources of heat. Um, and I think that the the real action in a lot of these states is coming from the companies that are making commitments um, while in those states. And so you're seeing utilities commit to zero emissions by some date in the future, both big utilities, small utilities. You're seeing tech companies like Google, like Microsoft, that have operations in many states that are going to continue to drive the demand for clean electricity and clean and other clean energy in those states. And then you're seeing things like financials like BlackRock and others that are making big bets into the clean energy space and will almost definitely continue to do that. So I'm pretty optimistic that um, that states are going to continue to lead, especially over the next year, but probably well into this decade. I'm going to give you one more question, Greg, before turning to the ambassador to close out. There's a question about whether the benefits uh, we're seeing from to the environment in response, amid the response to coronavirus, could then be part of this clean energy discussion and climate discussion. Uh, are there co-benefits of green growth while combating COVID-19's health and environmental impacts? Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, so I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, we're, we're sort of seeing a window into what the world could look like if we stopped emitting um, pollutants into the air. That's definitely a good thing. And it's a good thing for people who are breathing air and drinking water in places like Los Angeles. But 
I think it's going to take a lot of work in the long term to actually get there, you know, when we return from this crisis. Um, it's going to probably bounce back pretty quickly to what it was once we all come out of our homes and drive our cars and, um, you know, and the factories ramp back up. So I think it's temporary, but it kind of gives everyone a sense of, you know, wow, you can really see a blue sky in, in a place like LA or, you know, Beijing. Um, maybe this would be a good thing to, uh, you know, to have in the future. As someone based in LA, I can attest to that. The clean air is nice. Um, Ambassador, turning to you with two pointed questions from the audience, and then I'll let you finish with any final remarks you may have of your own. The two questions are, first of all, are you concerned that the convergence among EU member states will suffer as a result of COVID-19's uh, challenges? And will that be adequately addressed in the context of the EU Green Deal? The other piece was asking specifically about whether the 1 trillion euros for green investment will be encroached upon by the coronavirus response. Will those funds need to be appropriated elsewhere? So I think both collaboration among EU member states and will that be stressed? And then how will money be moving in response to coronavirus and will it affect investment in clean energy? Thank you. The, the second question, uh, we are working as we speak on the new uh, EU budget and uh, our priorities. Um, the political will that I described when I, in my opening remarks uh, is so important when it comes to a place like Europe. We are based on solidarity and on political will as much as we are based on anything else uh, when we move forward policies. Uh, sometimes policies that people are predicting uh, make no sense and wouldn't work. Uh, for those of you in the financial markets may remember back in the late 90s, early 2000s, how many economists said the euro as a currency had no chance to succeed. It made no economic sense. It would collapse. And of course, the euro not only has not collapsed, but it remains, even after the financial crisis, uh, you know, the second uh, strongest, uh, largest currency in the world. And I mention this because, like with the Green Deal, so with the euro, um, it was the determination, the solidarity of the EU and its member states that brought together a policy and imposed it uh, in Europe and in the world in the end of the day. Uh, you will see the same will here. And the one trillion and all the money that has been you know, ring-fenced for, uh, for the uh, uh, green transition is not the money that is being now touched uh, as we address coronavirus. Uh, but of course, yes, there is a challenge. We, need, we will need to get more money than we had predicted generally into our budget, into our system uh, to, uh, to address growth. And this is what we're discussing right now. Keep in mind, uh, more than three trillion euros have already been committed by the EU in the past uh, few weeks all member states together to, uh, to get us out of this crisis. And some of that money, supporting companies and others, also will be money that will then be channel channeled into the green transition investments we're talking about. So Europe is, uh, is very committed to this. The first question is interesting because, it, because I, if I understood it correctly, it, it wonders whether or not European solidarity uh, has been challenged or hit during the coronavirus crisis. And my answer to that is no, uh, and a little bit yes at the beginning. So health as a topic is not a European competence. In Europe, member states give up part of the sovereignty willingly to the European Union in order to be able to exercise joint sovereignty and do things much better together and be stronger together and individually than if they did it on their own. Trade is a classic example. And so we don't fight around the world, 27 countries, smaller economies against bigger ones. We fight as European Union 
as the whole of the 27 countries, and that makes us humongously strong uh, and powerful. But health was not among those things. Health was natural competence. So at the beginning, when corona broke out, you had a big um, um, initial divergence, uh, different member states trying to address it in their own way. Until everyone realized that this was affecting the internal market, the EU, one couldn't do it without the other at the end of the day. And then everyone came back and said, wait a second, no, we're going to actually come and converge. And then we moved to the convergence phase where everything from procuring masks and ventilators and everything else, uh, instead of having member states fight against each other, became a European issue. And now we are procuring from around the world and within Europe all those things that we need for everyone together to support every one of our member states. So uh, I am not concerned about European solidarity at all. In fact, I'm quite proud with the way that it has unfolded up to now. And I expect there will be even more of it, both for Corona and for the green transition. There you have it. The EU says it's sticking with its green deal despite coronavirus. We'll keep watching for updates on that going forward. And we hope that you enjoyed this conversation, which was again brought to you by the EU delegation. So thanks to that team for letting me share this audio on our podcast feed. Speaking of the podcast feed, you can subscribe wherever it is that you're listening right now or wherever it is that you would like to listen. We're available pretty much everywhere from Apple to Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn and beyond. You can also find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. Tweet us there. Leave us a message. We love to hear from you. That is it for now. Thanks so much. And until next week.